Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Wetdale. Today we hear from Mikkel Nielsen and Jasper Hugendorn of IDTV, the Dutch all three media subsidiary behind the traitors, about the hit competition format's journey to screen. From formats veteran Phil Gurin about why he's backing the US writers' strike and his fears about the impact of AI. And from Cineverse's Yolanda Macias on the latest trends shaping free ad-supported streaming. IDTV is the all three media Dutch subsidiary behind hit competition format The Traitors, which has proven a winner for local broadcaster RTL4 and around the world with remakes for the likes of the BBC, Peacock in the US, HBO Max Spain and Network 10 Australia. But the format's success didn't happen overnight and was nurtured over a number of years, developed alongside other IDTV shows including its own version of Belgian adventure reality game show The Mole. Mikkel Nielsen and Jasper Hugendorn, IDTV Managing Director and Creative Director respectively, spoke with Clive Whittingham about how the traitors made it to screen, the reasons for its appeal, the broader trends they see shaping the unscripted sector right now, and what's next for the company. I think what, what is important to, to know and to say is that this didn't happen over one day. So we, we, we started a, a strategy actually five years ago to invest a lot in, in only one thing, and that's creation. So uh, creation of a, a creative team, but also uh, people who can execute all the ideas we have. And so we invested a lot in, in uh, not only in Jasper, but in his team. And uh, well, it was a it was a it was a long road, but eventually it paid off. Of course, with the traders, but not only with the traders. You you see, because in the in the meanwhile we did a lot of other things. We developed other formats, and so the strategy of investing in in creation comes to a point that we have a lot of new formats right now so and 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 of course due to the traders people are more interested in idtv than before and of course we are going to make use of that by uh, by selling them and by offering them new ip we created here in-house so and and since the beginning of this year jesper and i uh, we're the two uh, members of the board and we are actually heavily investing in in creating even more ip new formats uh looking for opportunities to cooperate not only in the netherlands because we see that as you know the netherlands is a quite small country uh, so we have to expand abroad so not only in creation but we are we are investing in to see where are the opportunities in england us europe so um and that also starts in a small way but starts to pay off you, like you said you mentioned that this had been um a, a sort of five-year process almost but um we obviously had a pandemic in the middle of that and production shutdowns and and all of that how did that affect your plans and and your development i mean a lot of companies spent their time and money in the pandemic just doing development so so was it just business as usual for you guys or how, how did it affect the the plan that you had well it was not business as usual no. but the funny thing was that was that traitors we uh, got the commission for the first season during the pandemic so we shot the first season in the pandemic so we were very busy with that and uh, well of course as all the companies all around the world we have to find ways to produce it in a smart way uh, but we succeeded and I think 
and maybe it even helps us a bit because the first episode was launched in winter of uh, during the pandemic, so everybody was everybody was home. So it helped it helped with the uh, well with the launch of uh, of traders as well. So and in the meantime, of course, so with with that launch and with the whole success of traders, yeah, it was a it was a new start of where IDTV is standing. And still, it is as all the companies all around the world. It was, and is still a very hard time. Yeah, I mean, we've now got uh, we've now got all the the economic problems and 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 okay. inflation. Obviously, everything costs more. Television production costs more. People want to be paid more. How's that affecting things for you? It is affecting us. Uh, of course, it well, especially last year where we had a hard year in finding the right people. Costs were enormously high. So yeah, it it. It says a lot of pressure on your margin, no doubt about that. On the other hand, we uh, even d- during the pandemic, but also last year, we we kept investing in creation and and try to to get our own IP because we believe that eventually content content is needed. So the streamers, the broadcasters, the public ones and the commercial ones, they all need content. Um, so you better make sure that they take yours. So uh, that's exactly what we are trying. Of course, we have disappointments as well that they don't commission or recommission uh, formats. But the, the, the success of the traders, which was created here, helps us to that that customers find uh, they find a ID TV and they, they they trust us that we are able to create new IP. So and I think it's important to say that we're part of the the big family, all three media families. So during difficult times, it is really nice to have a company backing you up and helping you through those rough times. And that's exactly what happened at the pandemic time. And they also helped us that they believed in our strategy to invest in creation and they support us in that way. So, um, yeah, you need support and trust from your mother, so to say, to to make sure that you uh, go in that direction you really want to go. It's a good uh, it's a good safety net to have. It's a big uh, big company. Um, obviously, there's there's all sorts of strikes affecting drama and scripted production at the moment, both in front of and behind the camera. I guess it's it's a good time to be an unscripted production company, or or is it? Uh, <laughs> I know people are a little bit wary of uh, wanting to be seen to be sort of taking advantage of the strikes or whatever but uh, it's, it strikes me that it, it's a good time to be an unscripted production company because there's going to be a lot of slots to fill around the world well we're not we're not making advantage of it of the situation but we believe in what we're doing and of course with the traders it opened doors uh, all around the world to speak to the linear broadcasters but also to streamers uh, we have good contact now all around the world with uh, well with the biggest streamers to see if we can make new uh, formats to them. And until now, it's looking good. Yeah, maybe it's, it's hard to say, uh, but of course we are happy if there are possibilities at other places. Uh, also, because we're always looking for the right launching partners for for our uh, new IP. And we have that in the Netherlands, but as Michel just said, the Netherlands is a very small country, so we don't have that much of uh, broadcasters. We're doing traders at uh, at uh, RTL4, um, which is a very good cooperation. We do this, did the same with The Unknown, uh, one of our newest shows, and we're going to do that with our well, with a new show um, for next year. We're very happy of that, very proud of that. But we're also looking abroad for what are the good launching partners uh, well, to launch our new IP. 
And then, of course, it's good that uh, other networks all around the world are looking for content. Do people come to you now? <laughs> like, were you struggling? Like people that you were struggling to get meetings with before? Do they come and come and knock on your door? Is it the, is it the other way around now? Sometimes it is. Yeah, actually, it is. It, it's we, we said to each other. It's really funny that uh, a couple of years ago we we were. It was for us a real struggle to 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 get a foot between the door at Netflix or wherever, but. Actually, they are now uh, give us a, a call and say, hello, can we stop by? And uh, what kind of contact do you have? What is of interest of us to us? So, yeah, they they do. But uh, then again, we still have to go out there and, and of course, uh, trigger them with, with our uh, formats. Yeah. Nick, can we um, can we dig into the traitors just for just for a little while? Um, I want to know where the idea came from and why you guys think that that show above sort of all the others has really hit. Why did why did that? I mean, you, like you mentioned, it, it did launch in the pandemic when everyone was at home, certainly in the, in the Netherlands. Tell us how you came up with it in the first place and what are the ingredients for that? show that have made it in your opinion have made it sort of hit with audiences well it it began with a with a book uh my colleague my former colleague mark and and myself read read a book about uh mutiny on the batavia it was a ship uh, 1629 a dutch ship which gets uh, shipwrecked uh there was mutiny on the on the ship because of a big treasure and we were discussing about that and I was reading it and I thought, because all of the mutiny and all of the betrayal which was there between human behavior, uh, uh, human beings, it, it, I felt so lonely when I read that story and I, and I was thinking about if we can make a show about trust and betrayal and we can get you the feeling um, these people felt, yeah, then we can get something really special. And I was thinking about a, a, a game I played years before with my friends, and that was the inspiration to come up with uh, with a game structure. And what we believed from the beginning was, can we create a game structure where we can put contestants in and just uh, watch it as fly on the wall, so don't intervene, so no, not scripting anything, because then we can see what human beings can do to each other. And that can give a very special and intense and authentic uh, television show different than all the reality shows we already know. And that was what well, that was the the, the uh, well where where the whole idea started. We pitched it for years and years. That's, uh, I, that's what I was going to say. I bet it didn't get away on the first pitch. No, no, no. We started in 2016 with it, and we pitched it for years and years. Uh, got a lots of no's. Uh, also, because we are the production company who's making the mall for 25 years in the Netherlands, which is a guessing game. So everybody was saying, well, but if you have traders, then you have to guess as, as viewers who the traders are. And we said, no, 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 because we want to make a psychological reality show. We, we're not going to make a guessing game because if you know who the traders are, you can see all these lines. You can see all the, the backstabbing and you understand what it's doing to people. And that's so much stronger than make it a guessing game. That was our belief. And um, yeah, we hold we hold to that, even if when, when networks were saying, well, we, we think it's interesting, but then it has to be a guessing game. We said, no, we believe in the way it has to be like this. We made a pilot. And in the end, after three or four years, we showed it to uh, RTL, uh, the biggest commercial network in the Netherlands. 
uh, yeah, they saw our pilot and they say, yes, this is this is really special. And from that moment on, we worked on it and um, it was a great success from the beginning. So the, the notes that you were getting were, were based around the sort of the, the crux of the format, that people wanted it to be a, a guessing game, like you say, rather than the, the psychological thing, which is what you were going for. Those were the sort of main notes you were getting for, on the on the rejections. Yes, yes. And we and we we uh we thought, well, um sometimes it's good to listen, but sometimes you have to be- st- stick at your belief. And I'm happy that we did that because uh, I think that was one of the main, it's one of the main reasons it's so different and so special that you just can, can watch human behavior in this toxic arena we're creating with the traders. And everybody everybody knows, I think, how it is to be betrayed. And well, it's one of the deepest emotions. And because of that, it's so, it's so intense, but we still... It, well, with, with all this kind of television shows, we want to watch it as long as we're not into it for ourselves. And that's the same with the traders. So we like to see you as, as, as viewers, you like to see uh, all the strategies, uh, all the lies, all the, yeah, that, that, that's what we love as, as human beings. When you get a successful show like this, television can be quite sheet-like and everybody tries to sort of do their own their own version. Is this going to be a, a trend in psychological formats? Is, it, is it, Are you looking to develop more psychological formats or are you looking to sort of zig and zag in completely the opposite direction now? Well, what we love, we were at uh, MIP TV in uh, spring this year and there's always a v- big presentation about trends from, from the wit and we got our own, uh, uh, what is it, the theme yeah yeah uh, about traders and friends so all kind of formats which are copying traders so which was a big compliment so thanks for that uh, to all the production companies and of course we are learning a lot we learned a lot from uh, from traders we are thinking what can we do with it we came up with our new adventure reality show the unknown which is launched in the netherlands big success it's all also sold now to uh, a few other countries but at the same time, we're thinking of what can we do different because we set a trend, I think, with, with traders, which is great. But we are now busy with a, a, a new show, with a new genre. Uh, we think it, 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 uh, it doesn't exist. And we, we already sold it to, uh, to RTL Ford's coming next year. And we hope to set the trend uh, again. So it's not psychological reality. It's a new thing. And that's the sport for developers, I think, to always be one step ahead and we really like doing that here at uh, IDTV. So yeah, well, let's see if that uh, will work out. And you mentioned sort of as we start looking forwards as well, other territories outside the the Netherlands. Is it as is it as simple as UK, US, or, or where are where are you guys eyeing for your, for your expansion? Well, we have a very good cooperation with uh, Belgium, with Germany, uh, France, UK, and US. All all from the all three family. Of course, the the, the streamers all around the world are very interesting. More and more. Uh, also, because they are more investing now in in non-scripted, not only about the strikes, but it, I think I think they're thinking of the future. Things are go- going to change. So for us, it's very interesting to see if we can come up with our own IDs, our own IP, also for streamers. Uh, yeah, and and the, the the interesting thing, trades is now sold to I think 23 countries. So um, we're very involved in all the adaptations of traders all around the world. So we're getting to know the networks and the production companies. So it helps us also to it helps us to understand that the, the markets better all around the world and also see trends and to see all the feedbacks everybody in the world is making traders the same way because it's a format of course 
But on the other hand, we are speaking to the networks. Okay, but in your culture, how does this work? Uh, what do we have to change a bit when it still fits the format, but it it can be interesting for your country as well, and it helps us to uh, with, with the developing of new IP. So all our IP, of course, in the fir first moment, it's in our head, and it's we're thinking how can it work? Can this work? But with all these lessons from all around the world, it helps us to think for okay, how can we make this format so interesting that it's also going to be in all these other countries? So we're learning a lot. How um how I was going to ask how hands on are you with the the different international versions? Because obviously you get a production credit and you're you're exec produced. But the the British version that did very well on BBC was filmed in the same hub as the US version. But the US version is is very different, very different host and some celebrity involvement. I think. Um, so how hands on are you guys with all these international um versions of your own show? Well, we're we're very hands on from the first day we got. Call uh, after sorry after the launch of Traders it was on a Saturday on Sunday and Monday we got a lot of calls all around the world from networks we want Traders we saw it uh, and they saw the ratings of course and we thought okay but this is a different kind of show uh, all three media is doing a great job in in distribution and consultancy etc but we know this show the best so we want to be involved in all these adaptations and for example uh, UK US we got our own uh, uh, executive vice president of IDTV formats who is there at location of all the different shows and uh, we invited our colleagues from Studio Lambert who did they did a great job on the UK and the US version but before they getting in production they were at our set in the Netherlands to explain how we're doing everything and uh, so we were very involved in that series and we have also always discussions with them okay this is why we think for the format this is very important but how can we fit your cultural the, the cultural differences and that of course makes differences in the uk or the us version it's more of a cultural difference than it's a difference in format i think like i said at the start of the the interview we're interested in sort of what your what your three-year plan for your company is moving forward where you think you're going to be if we sit down and talk again in three years where you'd like to be like i say i appreciate that's very difficult with everything sort of changing and the economy and whatever it's kind of difficult to have a three-month plan but as best as you guys can what is the the three-year plan for IDTV where do you guys want to be in three years time well we like I said we stick to our strategic plan we really have a strategic plan everybody says they have a strategic plan but <laughs> we really we really have one and uh I think important to say is that we involve people so the people who work here we discuss this strategic plan with them because actually they are the the ones who are going to they they are a big part of it is it going to be a success or not but the strategic plan is our main goal is to create own IP, but international IP, which can travel uh, along the world. And of course, uh, we already succeed with the traders, but there's lots, lots more to explore. Um, so we want to add uh, value to the uh, O3 Media catalog uh, with our own IP so that the O3 the Media group can benefit of our IP. And of course, that we benefit from the fact that we can sell this throughout the world and that we are able to produce abroad because that's one of our ambition as well is to to see if we we are able to produce in, in, a, in a big country like the UK or the US or well, that that's where we're aiming for. So actually in 25, we, we like to be one of the 
main companies within all three media that adds value to the all three media catalog when like you say because you've had this big hit the streamers are suddenly very interested uh, in you but if you did get a format away with say netflix for example but it's not just them the model is basically that they give you a chunk of money they take it for the for the whole world you know they might make three or four versions but it's all on netflix and it's just a deal with netflix if like you say you're trying to build your company up into one that's contributing IP to the all three catalog and has versions of the format all around the world. You know, is there a bit of a double-edged sword to these streamer deals? Like you'd love a big Netflix show, but at the same time, you kind of lose the IP and it doesn't fit with that strategy that you've got there. Yeah, but the the, 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 the main thing I think is, uh, you're absolutely right, of course. The main thing is that with everything we are developing at the moment, we are always discussing internally, okay, what, what is the best launching partner for this format and sometimes we come up with ideas we think well maybe with the with the ambition of how big this show is it is a netflix show or a prime show or whatever and then it of course it's interesting also to investing in the future to make that choice to to go to uh this kind of streams and we know we know uh what they're going to ask us and otherwise we have formats we think well no we're not going to then we go into whatever country, because we think we can sell 20, 30, 40 different to, 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 to that kind of uh, amount of countries too. So it's, it's always a discussion we have and, and, and we choose wisely. And it's, and it's interesting to see it, it, it doesn't go for, I think, for Netflix. But for example, in, in Germany, there there's always a total buyout. So it, it's the same as Netflix. And in, in the conversations we have with, with the German broadcasters, you see that there is an opening so that they are willing to talk about, OK, if we say, OK, this is really good content, but we're not going for a total buyout. At least they are willing to discuss this. And hopefully that that, that we will we'll come up with something that is more better for us than than a total buyout. And and um, we're now releasing uh, sort of traders in 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 Germany in September, and maybe that will open doors for us as well as a company that we that they, hopefully it will be a great success in in Germany. And and if we are at the table at that with new content, we definitely are going to try to say okay before we go any further. We want to make a deal about the the, the IP uh, rights. And so, the, the traitors gives you a stronger bargaining position than you would have had previously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, about but but you're right about Netflix. That that's a well dual thing we we discuss frequently. Uh, so it, you get a chunk of money, but all the rights are uh, with Netflix. So yeah, but it's also funny. It's also you want to learn. So it's all that's the other thing because we didn't do anything yet for uh, this kind of international streamers so it's also an adventure we want to go for because we're going to learn uh, yeah yeah what just finally what is the biggest challenge that's going to uh, obstruct or make it difficult for you guys to get where you want to go is it is it the economy like we've we've spoken about is it uh, market relation what what is the biggest sort of thing that keeps you guys up at night that uh, that's sort of in the way of your progress Absolutely the market, uh, definitely number one. And especially if you want to go uh, worldwide, it's it's much more difficult than you only have to concentrate on the Dutch market because you know everybody here. And there, uh, like I said, there, there's always a way uh, to, to, to sell something, but we are new, uh, a new kid on the block worldwide, speaking worldwide. So um, yeah, 
on the other hand, I think uh, we always say, don't do anything stupid. So uh, I, yeah, it's it's think before you act. So uh, okay, we're not we're not developing twenty new series, and then let's let's hope somebody picks one out of those twenty. So if you have a real good focus on what you want, so focus is very, very important. And I think in that way, you can convince people that what we are doing uh, will is also good for them. But at the end, of course, you are, yeah, well, if, if we are, if, if a big recession comes up, yeah, I, I won't say we're fucked, but we have, we have, <laughs> we, have a, we have a bit of a problem. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Um, but then again, we, you have to deal with this situation at that time. On the other hand, we still feel there's a hunger for new content. So let's try to fill this gap with our content. And, and, and the thing is, uh, last year, uh, let's say summer last year, we were sitting here, we, we thought, oh, we need more people on board because it's the, the, so hard to find people. And a year when this is a real... There are a lot of people who don't have any work. So moment, it's yeah. totally different than a year ago. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to predict, of course, and, and in that way, hard to act on that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so what we do is to keep our, we keep our cost low. We invest in IP and we believe in what we're doing in our strategy. And until now, it, it pays off. U.S. formats veteran and frapper co-chair Phil Gurin, president and chief executive of the Gurin Company, launched a new LA-based distribution venture called TGC Global Entertainment earlier this year. The firm got into full swing this summer with the appointment of an executive team spanning territories including Europe, the Middle East, Latin America and Australia and is already representing a range of entertainment, factual and documentary formats, series and specials. Gurian spoke to Ed Waller about the new business, its ambitions and how it's aiming to fill a gap in the market for companies unaffiliated to media behemoths. He also talked about his support for the US writers' strike and fears about the impact of artificial intelligence on TV. My name is Phil Gurin. I'm president of the Gurin Company, a production company that's been long running here in the US, create shows, and I'm also president of a new company, TGC Global Entertainment, which is our brand new independent distribution company. Just tell us about that decision to, to launch TGC Global Entertainment and why now? You look at the landscape of how people are selling their formats and they're selling their shows. Generally speaking, the big companies, what I call the global entertainment giants, the gags, sell the big brands. We all know the big entertainment shows, the game shows, the relationship shows, and the social experiment shows. And they're from the big groups, Fremantle, Banjay, ITV, Paramount, Peacock, you know, these places sell all these things. And I realized there's a hole in the marketplace because unless you are owned or partially owned by one of these gigs, your content is probably not going to be the first thing these companies pitch. No offense, they have companies that they own and they have to work their earn out and they have their internal content. But for independents or platforms around the world that don't choose to be part of those ecosystems, there needed to be an alternative. Now, there are some independent uh, distribution companies based around Europe, some in Asia. In the U.S., there's very few, and almost all of the other ones in the U.S. Have, are part of something, are part of a larger company in some respects. We are 100% independent. We're not part of any big company. We don't have any hidden investors. It's me and my American Express card. 
but we put together a really great team of sales agents and we know how to do this. You know, I've been around the international television business for a very long time. I'm a producer and a showmaker, so I speak producer, I speak creator, but I've been lucky enough to meet great people, distributors, producers, acquisitions folks, commissioners all over the world, and I thought, you know what? Why not? I think it's a good time to try to do this because there is a need as the, as the business has changed, right? There was a moment in time producers can own their content and then they could share their content and then they couldn't share it at all because of the state of the business and the economics. There is an opportunity again for producers and creators to own or co-own their IP so they should have somebody who can help them exploit it. It's really important that the community at large realizes that TGC Global Entertainment is meant for small, medium producers, production companies, and creators who can retain their rights, or platforms who don't want to be part of the global entertainment giants. So we are an alternative to all those big companies, but we think we're going to offer something special. Great team, great access, and hopefully a great future. What, what genres and what, what kind of content are you going to be looking to fill that gap? I come from the world of formats. I create formats, I co-create formats, I acquire formats. I know the format business pretty well. I'm also the co-chairman of Frappa. It's something I live and breathe formats. So we're really gonna start as a format. We're gonna lean into our distribution company we'll really start with formats. I would say 80% of our business will be formats, whether entertainment or factual formats. We'll have some finished programs in the documentary space, which we do and some finished programs in, in cooking, in other kinds of factual subjects, but format is what's gonna lead us, whether we're distributing it or acquiring it for distribution, but we're gonna be 360 all over the world, you know, selling formats. And so we think it's really important when we talk to rights holders, it's gotta be with conviction that we can actually deliver, right? We're gonna be boutique. We're not trying to glom onto every format that we can get our hands on. We want to take things that we know we can sell based on the relationships my network will have all over the world. And so we'll carefully curate. Like everybody says, we're not just gonna take anything. If we can't sell it, we don't want it, right? So when we get a format, when somebody brings us something, the whole team will look at it and we'll make a, a business decision. Do we think we can sell it with our contacts? But I'm also training our team to talk producer, not just sales agent. I want everybody to know that their content will be represented as if it's a producer speaking to a commissioner or an acquisitions person, because there's some nuances to selling that I think is different. Who the hell knows? I could be completely wrong and you can call me a liar in a couple of years, but right now I think that's going to be one of our sweet spots too. Anything else on the plans for factual and documentaries and finished tape stuff? So while the distribution company is going to lean into formats, because that's what we know best and that's where I come from, we also are getting people and platforms from around the world bringing us factual programs. We have things in the food space, the natural history space, the animal space, historical documentaries. We're, we, we already have one show that was produced. It, was, it aired on Channel 4 in the UK. It was called uh, Holocaust, The Revenge Plot. It was a Channel 4 thing about the Holocaust. Caravan UK produced it, and we're selling that. Um, that's the kind of, it's so opposite a studio game show, but it's the kind of thing we want to, to be out with. The, there's so many interesting food shows that we're seeing um, from all over the world, produced in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Asia. These are the kinds of things that we're going to have as well in the, in the factual space. But I want to say this. 
the goal for the company, look, we create shows here in the US, and so my company will be pumping as many of our own shows into this company to help build it, but I don't want it to be our company's distribution. I think 60 to 75% of the content in TGC Global Entertainment is designed to be third party from everybody else, and that's what we really want to build. Excellent, and, and uh, just fast forward three years, say, and uh, you're gonna be exhibiting at all the events, and uh, you know, you're gonna be taking out stands just like a regular distributor. You raise an interesting question about where we'll be in three years, and what kind of approach we'll have in terms of going to all the markets and taking stands. We want to be everywhere. We will be at the markets in Europe and the markets in the Americas, for sure. Probably, um, will we hit Asia Pacific? Possibly. Um, you know, our experience is some territories in that part of the world buy, but not all buy. They like to export maybe more than import. What's the face of all these markets? That's the real existential question. Do we want to go to all the markets and be present? A hundred percent. The idea of big, expensive stands, that's a different conversation. Um, our friends at C21, when you do Content London and Content LA, a nice table, your own table, your own space, that's a lot smarter, I think, than a $50,000 stand that you don't really need anymore. So, so what's the state of the format market right now in the US, Phil? There's lots of things changing it. Give us your take. I would say the state of the format business is exciting, slightly overwhelming, and radically confusing. Let's take that in three different ways. It's exciting because people are trying new things. You're hearing people try new things all over the place, right? Some things are gonna work, some things won't work. That's great. It's always great when a commissioner a platform will try something new. We want them to try something new. We also don't mind it when they do revivals because revivals are also part of the library value of the business. And if you're not distributing and remaking classic shows, there's no value to your library. So you need library, you need to have that ebb and flow of classic and new at all times in the format business. But what you have happening is, I talk to US buyers, and obviously we know this is happening all over the world, there's a diminishing of eyeballs. My teenage boys don't really, and their friends don't watch much TV anymore. You know, they're watching TikTok and other short form. So it's scary. You talk to some of the buyers here, and even though there's a lot of airtime given to reality and entertainment and the classic formats, they don't order that many new ones every year. It's very rare when you're seeing more than two or three new shows put on by the biggest platforms here in the US. So I think that's a scary time. You can't just rely on reboots. And we know every platform all over the world is relying on some of those because it's short, shorthand for the viewer. They know the title, they'll come to it, just like sequels in the movie business. But you have to, the only way to have a healthy format business is you have to have room for new. And you have to have commissioners and channels and platforms willing to try new. So you're seeing it. There's so much great content being created. And I think there's kind of a logjam of some of this new stuff really getting seen by people. Which also brings me to another theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Between broadcast and streamers and digital and all kinds of ways, fast channels, there's a lot of stuff out there. It's confusing for the viewers. Most viewers are just normal folk, want to watch a television show, and they don't give a damn where it is just as long as I can find it. I think there's maybe too many outlets, too many places where people can go 
And maybe it's just something because I grew up watching television. I can find my channels. But I think there's too many outlets and there's too many ways for people to find things, which by necessity is changing the economics of the business, which is why all these big companies are firing so many people because they're not getting as many eyeballs as they used to. But I also think they're training the viewer to go elsewhere. You got to try new things to keep the viewer with you. If you keep showing them the same old, same old, they're going to go and find entertainment in other ways. So original formats are still, to me, the way forward. And lots have been said about uh, the economy for this year and, and its impact on uh, the kind of shows that are getting commissioned. What's, how's that kind of percolate down to sort of uh, the unscripted space, which is obviously a bit cheaper to produce than, say, drama? There's always three categories of unscripted, right? There's the big marquee, big expensive shows in the US, million, three million dollars up somewhere there. Then there's that mid-range of shows, 450 to 750, 800,000 dollars. They program a lot of those. And then the traditional classic inexpensive, what would have been syndication here, the daily shows that are much less. You're seeing networks try to do all three. The problem is, they're not, the buyers, if, if the audience isn't there and the ad dollars aren't there, you can't do some of the big shows. You talk to some of the US platforms, they'll tell you maybe they'll take one or two giant swings. That mid-range is where their sweet spot is, but they're all starting to focus on the lower cost shows. This is what we're hearing. The other thing we're hearing from everybody is co-pro, co-pro, co-pro. And that's a bad word sometimes for some places. What does that mean? I talked to people in the US, in Europe, why can't we share? Let's launch, this is the good thing for, uh, for, for new formats. Why don't we just share the development of it? Let's launch it together, the price comes down. It's not just the hub model where we know what a hub is, where you, know, where you can go to a location and everybody just comes and makes the same version. But if different companies put money into the development of original, you're mitigating risk. The other thing you're seeing, and I know I'm all over the place with this, you're seeing US companies shoot their shows all over the world now. Again, it's all about money. Everything here is all about money at this point. What about the, uh, the impact of the strike on the unscripted space? Give us your take on, uh, on first of all, the strike and what it might mean for those working without scripts. The strike by the Writers Guild in the US is coming at an existential time for the entire industry, especially for writers. I happen to be a member of the Writers Guild. I'm also a member of the AMPTP as a production company. So I think there's merit on both sides. I hope both sides come to the table soon because what's wonderful, I feel is wonderful, the Writers Guild are getting support from the other unions, the other guilds, Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, IATSE, the Teamsters. We like, I like that they all see because of AI, because of what we've just been talking about, reduction in viewers. It's a pivotal time the networks and the streamers are not making what they want to make as much as they want to make profit-wise, but people have to make a living. And without, for me, I would say this, without writers, every union is important. You need a craftsperson, you need a driver, you need an actor, you need a director. But none of that happens unless there's an idea. So that comes from a writer. Maybe a producer as well, but a producer who's writing an idea. Writing the ideas are important. It's the lifeblood of the entire business. Unscripted is generally not seen as being WGA. Most of the shows that I try to do as an independent production company, because I'm passionately a supporter of the Writers Guild, I try to make as many of my shows union as I possibly can. 
So I know over the years, the game shows I've done, the reality shows I've done, we go out of our way to be supportive of writers because they want to earn a real living. And it's really irritating when you see giant corporations taking it out on writers. Without the writers, there'd be no shows. So, you know, people talk about, will there be more unscripted shows? Because, well, no, the answer is no. First of all, the companies don't have the same, they're not, they're not suddenly ordering more shows. They're thrilled that they don't have to spend as much money right now. And they're all hoping, in my opinion, it seems like they're all hoping that this goes long enough so they can cut shows they don't want, deals that they don't want to keep anymore, cut some overalls, cut writers. I, I think you're going to see all that. So they, that's why, in my opinion, the producers are not rushing back to the table. It's kind of a culling. They've been firing their own staff. Now how can they cull big, expensive overall deals? But I think the writers, I voted to strike with the writers, and I think it was almost 98% of the union voted to strike. It's existential. A writer used to make 13 episodes, now they make six. Same amount of work, same six months of work, a lot less money. And then we all know the issues of AI. Call me in six months, the business is going to be radically different because it's just... It's, it's, it's just going faster and faster and faster. Got to protect people. You got to protect their families. People have a right to do work that they love in an environment that's safe to feed their families. With the, with the time of the strike now, with the studios having so many more international relations and partnerships um, and such a, a load of content already in the can, is the timing of the strike particularly unfortunate for the writers? In the last few days, I've been hearing from different sides of this whole argument. Is the timing of the strike right? Is the timing of the strike wrong? We know we came out of COVID. We know there's been economic pain for everybody. But when you look at the global entertainment giants, the gigs, they're doing fine. They're all making money. They may not be making what they made five years ago, but who is? They're making a lot of money. You know when the time to strike is right? When the time to strike is right. It's really almost self-evident. You have to do what the writers are doing right now. I'm hopeful that the directors and the Screen Actors Guild will also stay as united as they are. You have, this is a, we are at a pivot point in the entire entertainment ecosystem. It's changing. It's, I used to say this about the silent movie business. There were a bunch of producers who sat around in 1928 saying, just one great silent movie and the business is coming back. And it never did. And then they all were afraid of television ruining the movie business. And it didn't. You know what? Writers have to stand up for the ideas and the integrity of the business. And if it's causing, causing pain, that's when you strike. That's when the labor action is going to be good. Otherwise, it has no teeth. Have you explored the potential for AI to come up with formats? I mean, there, there, is there something in that? AI and reality. Let's talk about that for a second. We know that these chatbots, and we know this artificial intelligence, have learned from thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of content what may work and what may not work. There was a famous writer, a screenwriter. His name was William Goldman. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He wrote All the President's Men. He also wrote a famous book a very long time ago called Adventures in the Screen Trade. And in that book, he talks about Hollywood, and he basically says this. Nobody knows anything. Because if everybody knew something, there'd be no failures. The scary thing is, AI is going to kind of moneyball algorithm their way into creativity. 
and maybe there won't be failures. But will they be interesting enough for viewers to keep coming? Who knows? Will there be enough variety in what an AI chatbot can create? I think it's an interesting time. I think it's a scary time. As co-chair of Frappa, we have to start talking about our formats. How can we protect formats from that? Will they just make it just different enough so that it's different enough in a court of law, right? Can they really analyze, and I bet they can, you know, we at Frappa have a scoring system that we use when we do analysis. And there's a certain threshold that we say, you know what, if it's above this number, it's probably a copy. If it's below this number, it's probably not a copy. If you have a chatbot developing a reality show, it could probably figure out where that threshold is and keep it original. It's a scary proposition. But I was, I'll tell you a story. I was, a, a friend of mine who's a sitcom writer, the other day I'm talking to her and I said, put in this stupid prompt. I just made up some idea. And 10 minutes later she came back and said, I put in your prompt and it wasn't terrible. And she said to me, I've worked on shows that were worse. Who knows? You know, is this a variation of Frankenstein? Have we actually created a monster? Does it have to look like it has a haircut and bolts? Is this a different kind of life that we're creating? And is that kind of life, that Frankenstein, going to take over creativity? I don't know. Let's talk in six months. Los Angeles-based streaming technology and entertainment outfit Cinedime rebranded recently as Cineverse, reflecting the company's evolution from its roots in digital cinema to a multifaceted distributor and provider of SVOD, AVOD and fast channels. The Cineverse distribution library now spans more than 60,000 film and TV titles, with over 20,000 of these available via the firm's eponymous flagship streaming service. Chief Content Officer Yolanda Macias spoke with Ed Waller about the growth of the business and the dynamics shaping SVOD, AVOD and FAST within the present economic environment. We are an entertainment technology company. Um, we celebrate culture through entertainment, innovation and storytelling. And we have really transitioned away from legacy businesses and through acquisition, organic growth in the streaming service area. Um, probably the first in the independent space to take a bold move and enter through acquisitions and um, the, the fast um, channel distribution. We're unique because we have our own channels of, um, we have 30 channels of which we own and operate 15. And we also are full, we have full distribution capabilities. So we're able to bring in um, movies and series on an exclusive, non-exclusive basis and monetize it in the best way to maximize revenues. Now, we're, uh, the industry's in a bit of an interesting sort of point right now. Um, do you want to just give us your take on the sort of overview of where we are with, with regard to the sort of interface of streaming, AVOD, SVOD, broadcast, cable, everything together at once? Yes. I mean, I think I would say that evolution has been going on for several years. Uh, and we were first movers and we had that advantage. Now it's a little bit more competitive as the networks and the studios all moved into that space. Um, you know, it's very much, um, for them, it's more of a transition, meaning the studios and the networks moving away from broadcast, traditional linear, to 
now sort of that same experience, but via the internet. Um, we decided early on to not try to compete with general entertainment, focuses on what we call enthusiasts channels, people that are really passionate about uh, content or even the experience that they're not able to get from general entertainment streamers. Um, so that could include, and does include for us, the horror space where they want deeper, more gore, more kills, um, or in the family and faith base. So we have Dove uh, subscription service. We just purchased Dove.org, Christian Cinema, so family and faith. People that uh, feel that this is that this area is underserved by studios for Hollywood, and they want safe content for their families. Another example would be we purchased DMR, Digital Media Rights, a company that focused on Asian content, and we really leaned into those fast services, Asian Crush and Retro Crush, which is anime and Asian originated content. Could you just give us an overview of the sort of uh, the uh, interface between AVOD and Fast, that whole market right now? Within our own services, um, what we what we're seeing is that. The more options you give to the end user, the better. So all of our channels, we are very business model agnostic. We gravitate to what we believe that audience, that target audience wants in terms of how to interface and engage with content. Um, so we have subscription services that may have a fast component. Um, we have AVOD services that have a fast component. We offer all ways to consume. We love the fast because it allows our programmers to program in a way that will engage and create higher um, CPMs and also um, allow for the audience to sample content and then either opt in to VOD or opt into a subscription environment. There's been a bit of a, or it seems there's been a bit of a boom in fast at the moment. What, what, what do you think that's all about? What, what's driving fast uptake? We believe it's the fast growth is coming from uh, the end user audiences wanting a uh, compelling experience uh, and something that they've been accustomed to in the broadcast world uh, and not having to necessarily pay. Um, also, advertisers are finally moving away from staying on the sidelines and fully engaging and understanding that their product and service customers are interfacing in, in a fast environment. So as all the uh, statisticians have shown, the, this area is the fastest growing <laughs> segment and we are in it. We are investing in our own um, advertise uh, sales groups and we expect um, it to be a driver of growth. How much impact has the sort of faltering economy had in the sort of transition from sort of SVOD to AVOD and FAST? Um, I heard earlier the economic downturn, specifically the economics um, of studio economics, are no longer as effective as they were in the past for various reasons. Um, that there is a greater urgency or pressure for everyone to value content. This is not new to us. We do not greenlight any deal making unless there is a PL. 
Um, we do comp analysis. We look at, at uh, similar content to the subject content to see how well it's performed. What is the challenge is that those comps may cannot be more than six months, months old. Otherwise, the ecosystem has already evolved from six months ago. So we have to make certain assumptions on that. So I would say it is critical to anticipate where the, the growth is, how you're going to monetize, what are those returns on any specific piece of ser you know, series or movies. Um, the, what I do see that is different than in the past is that the revenues are a little flatter than they were traditionally. Traditionally, you would see 80% of your revenues in the first year. Now it's more like 60, and then it has a longer life given the, the, the business model of FAST and Avon. Um, who, who is watching FAST? I mean, what, what demographics uh, compared to other media? I can only speak to our own services of who is draw, drawn to our FAST versus our ASVAD and, and uh, AVOD. Those that are, and again, it's the enthusiasts channels. So what we've noticed is a younger demographic is focused on um, FAST. They are in the areas of our action and horror, uh, less kids, also um, female, older skewing, um, Hallmark-like target audiences. There may be others, but since we're very genre-focused, um, those are the insights we've seen. And what, what, um, what other media consumption is fast cannibalizing? That is a good question. <laughs> um, let me approach it. Let me approach that in a different way. What, what we have seen through our projections based on historical results is that there is very little cannibalization between all the different business models. So, for example, if I just take it from exhibition doesn't cannibalize anything. Theater experience only increases awareness. Transactional, so people that rent and buy, that does not cannibalize SVOD, AVOD, or FAST. And we have plenty of data to support that. If it goes into a subscription, there is some cannibalization if it's available on AVOD and FAST. Um, so that's probably the area that needs to be more protected. Um, once it goes into AVOD and FAST, that's more of a, a preference to the end user if they want to select and view or they want to sit back, lay back, and have a more uh, passive experience through FAST. We don't see much of cannibalization in the, between those two. Why do you think so much of the FAST industry is so focused on North America? rather than the rest of the world? <laughs> well, we're focused on North America. Um, I, I mean, you guys may know better, but uh, we think, you know, we, we sort of take, we always take the first foot forward. We are willing to trial and experience, uh, experiment um, what the audience, our audience, our fan bases are more riskier in taking um, being willing to take on new experiences, move away from traditional broadcast or even physical format. But I, and, and I know we're not speaking about physical format, but it's a great example of 
where everyone has you know, written it off that it's declining. I know in certain territories internationally, it's still booming. Uh, but we have now seen an area of growth in the collectibles, much like in the music where vinyl has come back, so has physical in the collectible. Um, I just think that North America, both from a supply side and the demand side, are willing to take bolder risks. In terms of the um, different kinds of fast channels, what's the, what's the pros and cons of a, of a specific brand, about a particular program brand, a fast channel based about that, or a fast channel based around a, a genre like the ones that you operate? What I can say is that the genre-focused fast channels, we have seen great success. Uh, but it has, to be, it has to be more than just collecting all the content that's out in the marketplace and aggregating it and putting it in one place. That creates some convenience for the end user, but it's not enough for a sustainable channel. Uh, there's fatigue over time. If you're not refreshing, it's just not going to be that compelling to the end user. We not only look for genres that we know there's a significant fan base, but then we also try to enhance that experience through other means other than video. So that may be audio through podcasts. We have um, maybe a website that is a companion piece to the channel for editorial. Um, we want to create an ecosystem, an environment, an experience that is compelling to the fan. So Tell us about the sort of the trajectory for fast channels to move into exclusive and then even original programming. I believe exclusivity is already happening. We're doing it. Um, we will bring in, um, do an all rights exclusive deal for a piece of um, series or movie that is in truly compelling to that um, audience, to that uh, enthusiast, passionate audience. And we will distribute it uh, throughout all means, but allow for it to premiere on one of our AVOD services. So exclusivity is, is going to occur, ha is occurring, and um, we're testing it uh, with some content. We're not putting everything in that, in that space, but it will continue. We've seen success already. With original content, we are already in bringing in original productions um, for in, in development and producing and premiering on our SVOD services. Everyone has been doing that for a while. And I see that transition over to AVOD in short order. What about, I mean, earlier you mentioned that, you know, the, the platforms and the studios are getting into too fast. What's the, what's the pros and cons of a a company that owns a lot of content and is distributing that content, launching their own fast channel in terms of, you know, setting up in, in competition, I guess, with their, with their clients? You know, it depends on the, the content itself. Um, you need at least 200, 300 hours in order to launch a channel, a fast channel. Uh, you need uh, an ability to continue to refresh um, the channel. You need to know that your audience is there. You have a fan base, a built-in fan base. It's IP um, sourced uh, either through you know uh, a well-known franchise or series or 
book-based, toy-based, podcast-based, something that will already build, has a built-in fan base. And you have to listen to them and learn how they want to um, engage and be activated in your programming and continue to think of not just refreshing through similar content, but originals and, um, and new productions. Uh, what do you think the implications of this, the consequences of the strike will be for, for, the, for the industry and, and sort of the availability of US content on the global market? There are several impacts as a result of the strike. Uh, first and foremost, we hope, and I'm an optimist, hope that the strike will be resolved quickly and um, the writers are treated fairly. Um, we have a few projects ourselves where it's on hold as a result of the strike. And um, we hope that everyone comes back in, into the marketplace quickly. With that being said, uh, we have to be prepared for a long-term impact. Uh, we continue to source uh, movies and series outside of the United States. As I mentioned, one of our pri priority verticals is Asian content. So we are always um, sourcing from Korea and Japan and China even. And we will you know, lean into that. Um, so I think it's, it's, there's some upside to the global, um, the, the rest of the world with respect to sourcing content. And um, there will be also a greater demand for completed projects, um, which is probably 80% of what we do. And uh, just lastly, um, what, what kind of content are you looking for? What, uh, what kind of things are you, are you looking for to fill various uh, platforms that you uh, operate? The three areas that we are focused on are those that we have invested with respect to buying companies in that vertical. Um, one is horror, and um, the gorier the better, <laughs> um, but horror-centric content, series, shorts, and movies um, for all of these three verticals. The second is completely different in the family and faith-friendly uh, vertical, and uh, we also purchased Christian Cinema, Dove.org, and that's to um, enhance our Dove channel, and that's, you know, uh, family-friendly, faith-safe uh, content. Then the third is uh, to support our acquisition of DMR, and that's Asian um, content, centric content. We have two channels, two fast channels, Retro Crush and Asian Crush. Um, one is primarily focused on anime, and the other is more um, general entertainment of Asian content. Yolanda Macias, speaking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.